Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I've, I've, uh, I've used this example before, this story uh, or example before, but any time I think of inconsistencies, this is what comes, this is what comes to mind, and, uh, and I'm telling on myself, so uh, here, here we go yet again. But back in the day, we had a, uh, a business line in our home. That was back in the day when we had landlines, and we had a, a business line in the home, which never rang. And then one evening it rang, and I picked the phone up, and it was a college student from um, some college and wanted to know if I would take time to have a, uh, uh, answer some questions for a survey about religion. Why sure? So now this is like maybe somewhere really B.C., you know, before Christ for me, um, or, or, in, or in the midst of me, you know, trying to come to him somehow there. Um, we, I speak of cultural Christianity, and I, I was one. I, I know what that looks like because I was one. And I think this would have been more in that time frame because this is what convicted me. So she started asking questions, you know, is your faith important to you? Yes. She just kind of went down the line, do you have children? Yes. Who, who leads your family in the spiritual life? Um, or, or maybe she said, who do you think should, or something like that. And I gave her the answer, of course, of me. Then when it got to the kids, then who teaches them? Well, that's my wife. And it just went on and on and on. And all these questions that she asked, when I would give my answers, it exposed this big, wide discrepancy between what I said and what I really did. And so somewhere in there, um, I recognized my lack of consistency between my talk and my walk. Now, I, I, think it's, I think it's very difficult for everybody to find consistency, and it's very difficult, even like in theology, for us to be consistent 100% of the time. Now, you know, we try. That's the objective. And some of us try more than others, and some of us think on those things more than others. But this whole, the thing of consistency, and even in our polarized society with the things that dominate the news from the church, the news from the political realm, and those kinds of things, there are, there are people who are shouting that, you know, there, there needs to be all voices heard at the table, unless yours is a conservative Christian, we might not need to hear from you. Uh, so it's even in the, even in the arguments of, of inclusion that typically they, they falter because there is inconsistency. So I think this is kind of a natural thing. But our, but our lesson today, it examines the consistency of our faith at, between what we say and what we do. So is your witness of your walk equivalent to the witness of your talk. So that's what we're going to look at. And first we see it's, there's an impossible standard set. So we begin in 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your, all your mind, and, the na- and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this all seems innocent enough and you all have probably read this and it's kind of familiar and we open our service with this very thing. The, it's, the, it's the summary of the law there. And when we talk about the Ten Commandments, we understand there are two tablets or two tables of the law. And there's one that's pointing us to God and it's about us revering and worshiping him rightly. And once that's completed, then there's this other tablet or table which uh, enables us, if we're being obedient to it, to love each other. And so Jesus has this summarized in those words that we read. And this is a bit of a, an addition to some of that, but, uh, but it's all in there. And he's likely repeating Jesus' words from sermons as he knew these answers. But have you ever been in a group of people and there's a smart aleck around who, who wants to stir things up and then he ends up getting uh, showed up for who he is, kind of like put in his place? So that's, that's really what's going on here. And, it, and we, don't have to, we don't have to know a lot to understand that. It says this guy stood up to put him to the test. So he, he, had, he had a motive, and that was, he's going to, among the crowd, he's going to gain attention as he, uh, as he tries to get Jesus into some sort of a hook here. Um, now, I find this interesting, and we've got to remember our location here, because we're, we're in 10 and beginning in 25, but we were just uh, in the rest of 10, and, um, you know, these man-made headings kind of help us removes sections from the context sometimes. But the last time we, last week when we were uh, in our worship service, we were in Luke 10, and we were in uh, 21 through 24, yes. And it's some of these easy words of Jesus, because Jesus is only love. Jesus, last week, was saying, he was, giving, he was rejoicing that God had revealed these things the knowledge of his kingdom, the fact that he was the Messiah, not to the learned ones in the, uh, at the time, but to the ignorant, to the common person. I find that, to, as I said last week, I find those to be hard words. This idea that Jesus' is love and all he does is say nice things is just simply not true. You've got to read the Bible, and it's, it, I find that to be very harsh. So he's just rejoicing that it wasn't revealed to the learned ones. So here's a learned one stepping forth. So that's the context. I'm rejoicing that this wasn't revealed to the learned ones, and here's a learned and wise one stepping forth to put him to the test. And then he gets caught in his own trap. Um, He already knew the answer to the question. So Jesus, though, responds to him with a question. Now, I've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it forever, because this is Jesus' common way to respond to questions. Now, there's so little I know, but on some of those things, when I do know, if, if I'm asked, boom, I'm ready to give the right answer. And there are some of these things that sometimes when I'm asked, I have thought on these things and, you know, perhaps written on them and what have you. So I've got a ready answer. And, and I want to give the answer very quickly. But, and here's the, I think a, a, this is a lesson within a lesson, that when you have somebody asking you something about faith or your faith, you would do well to model Jesus' uh, actions here and respond to a question with a question. How do you find that? What did you read? How, how do you interpret what you read? And then you're hearing more of his heart. He's, see, he's seeing first if, if he even knows it. 
for, for us in general conversation, as we ask people these things, and we hear people respond, um, it, will, it will reveal more of who, who they're thinking. Becky, uh, sometimes as I'm asking her things, she gets impatient. She says, what's the real question? And she, and she does this with our kids, too, so it's, it's not just me. But, uh, but what's the real question? There's a question beneath this question, and we don't need to be so blunt if, if, if it's a co-worker just asking us a question. But asking a question to get below the surface, I think, is just an interesting thing, and here we see it yet again. And so this guy responds, and uh, he's responding with the Shema, which we've talked about, which is in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And then it seems that he's added Leviticus 19, 18. So Jesus commends him for his answer. But then he says simply, do this and you will live. Well, the lawyer didn't get one over on Jesus like he intended. Instead, he was exposed for who he was. Did he come to, to Christ with childlike faith? No. He's asking questions, not for gaining knowledge because his heart is seeking this, but to actually catch Jesus. Sometimes you'll be asked questions about your faith only to stir things up. And you can kind of diffuse that by asking other questions. So I think this man was humiliated when Jesus answered, or by by Jesus' response being a question. So the man answers his own question, and then um, he's, he's told to go and do this thing. And, and it's a recognition here that there is an impossible standard that was set. And, and the man even acknowledges that. So then he wants to adjust the standard. So we look in 29, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And we could talk a lot about our propensity to want to justify ourselves, and I'm not going to. But you might think on that later, because we all do that, we want to do that. I think this response came because this command was too broad. And as, as, as this is condemning for this lawyer, it's condemning for us when we think the command is too broad. Now, how could the command be too broad? Well, this is pretty loose. You're saying, my neighbor, is it... Could we just whittle this down some? That's, there are people who I don't like. There are people who are hard to like. Surely you don't mean those people, Jesus. Surely you mean, like, the people who live like I do, who are in my particular neighborhood, only those who I work with. I mean, there's got to be some restriction here. Um, we have our own issues in our, uh, our our region for our diocese we've continued a series that was started at synod about welcoming the immigrant welcoming the alien and i find those conversations to be interesting but a bit taxing for me because the reality is i don't care who this there can be all what we've learned in this is that there can be all kinds of people who appear to be an alien among you who don't fit 
into what now current society is. And we have some specific pictures that we would challenge us with. And in most cities, I think that works well for us. Some of these pictures that they give us, it just doesn't work well because we can't find these kinds of people because we don't have any. So it would be the alien among us, and it would be those people who aren't like us. And, and can we recognize that everybody was made in the image of God? God said, let us create man in our image. So everybody is an image bearer of Christ, and I think we settle all this with the gospel. But here, Jesus wasn't just content to say, believe in me, and you'll, everything's going to be fine. He had to challenge us with believing and then acting. So back to, the, back to the point, narrowing down the field. How big is this field going to be? Can't we say, love people in a particular neighborhood? Can't we say, love people that look like me? And that answer is no. It's the everybody everywhere kind of thing. Who have you thought, perhaps, to be beyond your love? Beyond the worthiness of your love? My simplification of that complex problem doesn't really simplify uh, the problem for us because we because we still we y'all we have issues because there there are going to be people who I just love to love and there are going to be people who I don't love to love some people stink I mean physically they're harder to love some people are annoying just to be around them I'm that way with a lot of people I've got a very loud voice sometimes I speak and speak I startle people I did that the other day just yesterday Chances are good whoever that was that I scared to death probably wouldn't want to spend a lot of time with me. And But this, this concept of love being, we're choosing to love, and it becomes an action, and we're motivated because we've been loved, is what we're getting to. And that's, it's, it's, it's this ability that God puts in us um, that we are able to love people who are not like us. So... I think the other piece to this would be how often do we see people not just beyond our love, but do we see people beyond the love of Christ? So, you know, and I catch you at the right time in a Bible study, and I know your answer is going to be, well, of course not. But in the practicalities of things, when you're talking to those annoying and stinking people, when you're talking to people that aren't like you, do you really believe they're, that they are not beyond the love of Christ? Do you believe that they are not beyond the uh, ability to respond to the gospel? And I, and I think that even goes to the people that are like us. You know, one, one of the things that we like to do is go to, uh, you know, if you're in Virginia, you'd really like to come to West Virginia where you could bring the gospel to these people who were not like you because we're coming from nice, fancy suburbs, and we come to the hollers of West Virginia, and we can tell you about Jesus. Well, what about living in the suburbs, as some of us do, or the neighborhoods that some of us do, and talking to your neighbor? So, I've heard somebody conclude that you must not really uh, love me, because you've never told me about this good news. I see you go out of your house every week. And you're gone and you spend all kinds of time at church, but you've never told me about this good news. Do you really believe it? Do, do you not think your good middle-class neighbor is worthy of hearing the gospel? I think these are hard questions for us to ask, but I think that's the thing about justifying ourselves. And, you know, if I'm 
if I'm pinching at you, it's not really me, it's the Holy Spirit, but even in that, you're probably saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. That's justifying yourself. So that's the one you can think on a little bit later. So Jesus gives him the standard of the neighbor. So that there was an impossible standard set. Had to justify himself. Let's reduce that standard. Let's adjust it. So Jesus gives him the standard of the neighbor. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. and st- He was stripped and beat, beaten and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Um, this man and the crowd, perhaps, needed to hear a, a word picture. They needed, they needed more. His answer uh, that he gave was right, but then he asked this question to qualify, and so Jesus wants him to understand something greater. And so he gives him this story, and perhaps this story would bring to mind that perhaps a uh, priest from serving at the temple in Jerusalem was heading back to Jericho. This would be a very likely scenario. And, and these, these people who he's talking to, those first listeners, could really relate to what he's saying. So the, he's walking down the road, but he checks him out, and then he goes to the other side. This guy who was just serving, perhaps, at the temple is the image that was coming. You've just been serving at the temple. You're going home. You come to this man, but he might be dead. And so if I, like, touched him, I would be ceremonially unclean. Okay, so I'll just, just go way over here. You ever, you ever ignore problems? Because you just don't... Okay, I just don't have that time. I can't get drawn into that. Not that it's, We all need boundaries. Sometimes that's even the thing to do. But in this case, there's something severe going on here. The priest, who I would have thought... And this is what the story is supposed to elicit in us. The most likely to help goes to the other side. His religiosity, his ceremonially cleanness trumped his compassion. So he goes to the other side. And then in doing so, he's, he's keeping, and the only reason you have all these ceremonial laws is so that you can keep this first part of the law, that thing of being right with God, that second table of the law. You just well shatter that for this man. He kept peace, or this peace, but didn't love. He couldn't. He couldn't be bothered to love his fellow man. And then verse thirty-two. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A, a Levite was a temple liturgist, and so they're overseeing the worship practices at the temple. So it's a, a similar deal. He's, he's maybe not as high up as the priest, but he's pretty high up, and it's about organizing and facilitating the worship of God. And the way this reads in the original language, it, it, it appears that perhaps he came to the man and inspected him, and then he went to the other side of the road. And again, the, practicing those rituals makes him right with God. You have all these ceremonial ceremonial laws. Uh, He's keeping the first table, abolishing the second. So Kent Hughes, a commentator, says that the original hearers would have been expecting like a threefold unveiling here. So as the tension rises with the story, you've had the priest who would, in a hierarchy level, a priest came by and ignored him. You have then the Levite, who is right under that, comes by and ignores him. 
And so the crowd, I'm sure, at this point is listening for the Israelite layman. So the Israelite layman is going to come by and, and serve him and put the priest and the Levite to shame. But they get far more than they bargained for. It's not what it says. Verse 33 says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So just in last week and the week before that, I think, we talked about um, this animosity that existed for centuries between the Samaritans and the Jews. Um, The only regret that they had was that there was only so short a time to hate each other. Uh, This is just what they did. So this this is an arch enemy that Jesus portrays as the hero of the story. The Jews would pray imprecatory, uh, kind of damning prayers for to God about the Samaritans. One such prayer said, "And do not remember the Cushites in the resurrection." Okay, that's pretty. That's pretty bold. It's pretty bold. If 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 you're if if for your enemies, you're going to say to to, to the Lord, you're going to intercede on their behalf only so that they can be condemned. There was a real hatred here. So, you didn't have the Israelite layman becoming the hero. You have the arch enemy coming by, taking pity on the victim. Then he cared for him, he bound up his wounds, and then uh, the others just walked by, but he actually stops, he cares for him, puts him on his own animal, takes him to an inn, and then he gives him this two denarii. That's enough to like pay for food for 24 days. So this is a this is a huge giving of perhaps few resources. But where where does that come from? Well, to add, to add even more contrast between the law keeping Jews and the Samaritan, it's helpful for us to understand that a uh, liturgical act, a uh, part of their devotion, would be that they would recite and pray the Shema twice a day. You do that in the morning. So you do it in the morning, you're leaving Jericho, and you're going to go to the temple, and you're going to do your thing. And then you come back, pass by this guy, and then before you go to bed, you pray the Shema again. And the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So, I, and I talk about us doing our the, the daily office or for morning prayer and how the liturgy shapes us. Our liturgy in our bulletin, it sets a rhythm for our service. Our service sets a rhythm for our week. As we, and then as we enter into those things, we're, we're, it's, it's uh, in us to confess our sins and receive the forgiveness. As we do sin, it's, it should be very common for us to go to him in confession and so on. So these, the liturgy shapes people. That's what, that's, this is what I tell you. They have liturgy. I just read it. And here's what they did. They did it in the morning. They went and served in the temple during the day. And in the evening, passed by this guy, then come back to their home, and then do their devotions at night and talk about how much they're to love God. That's why this story is, it's, it is familiar for most of us. But it's one of these eye poppers. Because it's really, really bad what these guys did. 
And Jesus is pointing it out because the Samaritan is the one who becomes the hero. Jesus asks, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. Of course, the answer was absolutely right. The keeper of the law, in this case, the the law being that love God and love your neighbor, was the Samaritan. It wasn't the Levite, it wasn't the priest, but it wasn't the lawyer also. I think for us to grasp the gravity of this lesson, we also need to ask, but who is the Samaritan? Who is the Samaritan? Now, the force of the parable asks you, which character do you identify with? Are you the priest? And I've challenged you this way. I, exegetically, I've done what I should do. I put it on you. That's what it says. This is with the intent of this parable, to put it on you. Who are you like? Are you more like the priest? Are you more like the Levite? Are you more like the Samaritan? But for a moment, I want us to say, who is the Samaritan if you are the one in the ditch? So when I say, which one are you in the, in the story, we're thinking which one of those three characters. And that's the, the purpose. So we talk about meaning as a circle, and there are some things that are more centered to the circle and some things more outside. I'm getting a, the center of the circle is what we've discussed so far. This is also in here, though and it helps bring us back to the center. This is, okay, you're not one of those three, but you're the one laying in the ditch. You're not a hero. You're not the loser. You're the one that was robbed and beaten and left for dead. Who is a Samaritan? And and if we're not careful, we're going to think, well, you know, my dad always helped me. My mom always helped me. I had friends. I had this. No. Now, this is pointing us right to Jesus. The only one who, while, remember the piece about the arch enemy. You see, for the one lying in the ditch, there was not an arch enemy of the priest or the Levite. It was the Samaritan who was the arch enemy that becomes the hero of the story. Who was your arch enemy as you're lying in the ditch when you're helpless and dead? And I'm telling you, the one you were opposed to, the one that you did not love, the one who the Bible says was your enemy is Jesus himself. And he comes down while we were his enemy and dies for us. Jesus, while we were his enemy, comes along while you're near death or dead and your sins and transgressions, as Paul would say. He comes along. He has compassion. He heals us. He pulls us up. And then he takes us and he, he, he gets us mended and then he cares for us. And then he pays our debts completely. It's an overwhelming generosity that that of the Samaritan cannot even match. The reality, if we're the one laying in the ditch, is you don't need help from the religious crowd. And, e- and even if the religious crowd were to have served some of the physical needs, that great need is from the one, the only one, who can rescue us.
the one who rescues you from trouble. To follow the model of the Samaritan, to love your neighbor, is an impossible task. Unless you have received this grace and this love from the great shepherd. And then he enables you as he, to love others. But it's him working through you. So is it possible to love people you don't even like? Absolutely. Does it come natural? No, it does not. But because of Jesus working in you, you can extend love and grace to others. You achieve the impossible task because of what he does in and through you. The Samaritan's actions said that he loved God, and by their actions, meaning the Levite and the priest, they were weighed in the balance and found wanting. They said they loved God. His actions showed he loved God. How consistent is your life? Do you love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind? If so, hear these words of Jesus. You go and do likewise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.